Welcome to Help from Future Self. Howdy, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, a.k.a. Alex, and I am joined by two very close Keyforge friends of mine and yours, I hope. We've got the Wheeling Keyforger, Rick. Howdy, y'all. How you doing? And Boulevard Blake. Hey, what's going on? Not too much. Glad to have the original trio of Help from Future Self together here. Sydney, of course, with it being uh, American Thanksgiving, the day that we are recording this, is not able to join us. She's hopefully having good food and good times with her family. But that uh, just gives an excuse to get uh, the, the original trio of Help from Future Selfers together to have a little conversation about dark tidings now that the set has been out for a while. We've all had the opportunity to play it a bunch and really sort of sink our teeth into it. And I'm excited for this discussion because I think that we're going to get a couple of different perspectives based on our individual levels of play, how many decks we've purchased, how many different styles of deck within the set we've played, and the kinds of games that we've played with them. Are you guys ready to get this conversation started? Oh, yeah. I am. Let's do it. So I wanted to start things off with with a pretty straightforward question. This is, of course, the set that introduced the unfathomable. Brand new house. Great to see a brand new house coming in who have a lot of mechanics specifically attached to the Tide, which is, of course, the mechanic introduced with this set. And I wanted to ask you, before we get into talking more broadly about the set, the way it plays, what are your feelings about unfathomable as a house now that you've had the opportunity to play a bunch of decks with Unfathomable within them and uh, how they play. Well, I've got quite a... Actually, in my first bunch of decks, I think I got like half of them were Unfathomable. And I quite like them as a house. Um, Two of my favorite cards from the set are in the house. So, yeah, they they seem fun. But I will say decks under a certain level as I play my ladder climb just no they don't do anything yeah i'm uh i've been really enjoying the unfathomable house it it provides a new perspective into the game in a really unique way and i think the creatures are interesting i feel like they balanced out the previous fault of bringing in a new house and making it almost exceptionally powerful to you know, add that that excitement like we spoke about when we covered Saurians last week mm-hmm. when they dropped in Worlds Collide. I feel like they, they had a nice balance in relation to things. Uh, if anything, I think the commons are not the, the greatest. It's a little bit light on the common quality to make that, you know, really shine like we've seen in the past. But it does have some really interesting things and some great possibilities within the game. So I have been enjoying them, but I notice uh, you're not seeing the same sort of quality of house per deck on average as you did with like the Saurians and Starlines when they first were introduced into the game. Yeah, I want to echo echo your statement about the common quality in in Unfathomable because that's one of the points that I was going to make is that man, um, especially on the creature front, I don't find most of like the commonly found creatures that oftentimes you get multiples of to be super like super great. Like, I'm not going to say that like Gillspine Netcaster or Hookmaster or whatever don't have their utility. Obviously, they do, and they have interesting powers that you can deploy. But there's very little like you know, 
must answer threats, I find, until you get into the more rare cards. Um, I will say, however, that, uh, you know, from an action standpoint, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff at the totally. common level. Great actions. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I think that, uh, you know, Razukil's Chant has ended up being, like, a card that seems kind of like whatever on paper, but actually, like, you can use to really disrupt your opponent's turn, especially if you pair it with the Storm Surge. They're both at common. Both enable you to really mess up your opponent's battle line pretty badly. Um, Call the Void plays into that well. I I really dig it. Um, Not to mention, like, Maelstrom, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, in terms of what it can do. Maelstrom, if you're not familiar, is put each creature on top of its owner's deck in a random order, gain two chains. Um, You can really use this to mess up the board and and play havoc with your opponent, although oftentimes it does end up being a discard if you're the one who has better board presence. Yeah, I think the uncommons of Unfathomable, though, have like a significant upgrade compared to some other set's uncommons. Like, of course, we're talking about Kaupe and Fuguru, just mm. instantly putting in that work right away. It's it's just they're they're like you're never not sad to see either of those two cards because you know they're gonna do a lot of work for your deck, which is really awesome. Yeah, and and also to talk about like how good some cards get at the uncommon level. Uh, if we're talking about actions, abandoned ship is wicked good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I love that card. Yeah, that's worth taking the two chains. Like if the the tide is low. And you need to take, or sorry, the three chains. Uh, if the tide is low and you want to make it high for a specific reason, abandon ship is a hundred percent something I would do just to get the full benefit of that card and be able to put four cards back in my opponent's hand, mess up his draw on future turns, or sorry, mess up their draw on future turns, and take cards right off, like bounce them right off the table. That's fantastic. Um, I also really dig Thundertoe. Um, you yeah. know, there's lots of great stuff in there. Yeah, I agree. So uh, here's a question that uh, I have about Unfathomable is once the Tide is no longer a major factor in future sets, um, we're going to have to play a little bit of sort of like looking at the history of Keyforge and certain mechanics. Is that a thing though, Alex? Well, I think the Tide will still exist, but will it be as emphasized in future sets? Like when they introduced, for example, um, you know, enhancements – Mm-hmm. They were a huge thing in that set, de-emphasized for this set. When they introduced warding and enraging, it's because they never do anything with enraging. When they introduced ward and enrage, it was emphasized heavily in that set, de-emphasized in the next sets. So do you think Unfathomable has a future when they de-emphasize, theoretically, playing playing the game of just history and seeing what we know about the way that they've tended to design in the past, if they do de-emphasize the tide as a mechanic – does Unfathomable still have a role to play? Because it seems like it's so integrated to everything that happens with Unfathomable in this set. Oh, I don't know. I mean, if there's another mechanic that comes in, like a a trade wind of some kind, because winds of exchange, trade wind, you know, I Mm -hmm. can see that Mm -hmm. being a thing, uh, and the tide exists with it, then I think that's just going to probably annoy people at the end of the day. It's just so many things you're keeping track of that it's just becoming a bit... uh, arduous to say the least so uh, i hope that's not the case if that's going to be one or the other or who knows i mean maybe they're these sea creatures on land now and we see them in a different light it's it's hard to say or if it will be like you said maybe a diminished form like we saw with enhancements it's more selective and less um huge which it's just going to seem i don't know it feels like it's getting messy in a way if that is the case 
that's a good lead into, I think, sort of our next topic, which I was going to bring up just the tide as a general mechanic. How are you guys feeling about it? Um, my own feeling is I really like it a lot because one of the things that I always talk about is I like decision points in a game of Keyforge. I like the idea that you have to sit down and think about whether or not you want to do something. And even if you have a straightforward hand, the tide being in play means that you have to consider sort of a, a, a risk versus reward. Is it worth me taking this chains? Or is there a way that I can get away with not getting the chains? Or I can let this ride at low tide? And what do I know about my opponent's deck that lets me know whether or not it's a bad idea for let me do that? Or are they playing another set in which they're unlikely to interact with the tide in any way other than to take it away from me? And can I somehow sort of you know, let this go under the radar. I love that about it. Um, with regards to the way it actually impacts gameplay, man, does it slow things down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't mind the tide, but usually when I'm making the, the decision or not, whether it's, whether the chains are worth it, I'm usually wrong. <laughs> so I try to avoid that decision as much as possible. Yeah, I found my experience with the Tide is there's genuinely really interesting points to be considered because I think on the surface level, most people are grabbing the Tide. Like, I'm going to grab the Tide to gain this effect. That's mm -hmm. the reason why you're doing it most of the time. Or it's to prevent your opponent from having an effect because it's too strong. What I think is the more interesting decision is to not take the Tide. When there's cards on the battlefield that once you have claimed the tide, you are now giving your opponent the opportunity to claim the tide back. And a lot of things exist where once the tide is claimed, X thing happens, which could actually stop you moving forward in the game. I think a great example of this is the Sanctum creature, Senchel Sargesa, because when you grab the tide, doesn't matter which player it is, that player captures too. So if you basically your opponent has the tide and then you grab it and you put yourself in check, your opponent now can just take the tide and take you off check if you're like at uh, eight or, or eight or less, basically, or sorry, seven or less. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's such an interesting decision space. And then again, operative espion, if your opponent has the tide, they can't pull it and then get a double effect from their espion and, and whatnot. So I, I find it really interesting when you decide maybe not to grab the tide. Another one is flame gill enforcer. You can action capture three. If you know your Ember Control's light, if you take the Tide from your opponent, then they can take it back and rage it next turn, for example, and then you're not going to be able to use that as Ember Control. So I think the decisions to not take the Tide are actually more interesting than taking the Tide because it's obvious what you're doing when you take the Tide. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Um, how often do you guys get into a taking the Tide battle where it just seems like you and your opponent are eating chains like like crazy to, to prevent each other from having stuff. And at what point do you just say, fine, I'm fine with letting it ride? Like, I can't take any more chains. Is there a number? And I know this probably depends on the game, depends on the deck, but I find that I am reluctant to ever go over nine chains. Like, at that point, I'm like, why don't I just concede the game at this point? Because I'm going to be so far behind on draw. Well, I can say I've never done that even close to the number you just stated. <laughs> really? What's your number? Like? Uh, I just don't get into those battles very often, to be honest. Like it's, uh, it's, I, I weigh the cost usually. And the only time I'm ever incentivized to do something like that is if a hydro cataloger is in play 
and uh, I can archive cards. So it's kind of mitigating the mm-hmm. fact that if there's two, like you each have one, then it really makes taking chains like nobody's like going to worry about it. And it just becomes then like they're giving them away, which they are. So <laughs> what about you, Rick? Uh, I used to do it a lot, not so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my max was like six. I'm like, I'm not going to, do- I am not going two cards less. All right. Well, let me ask you then a deck analysis question. When you're looking at a deck for the first time, do you actually keep track of how many ways there are to raise the tide without eating chains? And does that matter in whether or not it's a good deck? Because it's something that I was actually started really looking at for the first time uh, when I was playing over the last couple of days in preparation for this episode going, one of the reasons this deck doesn't seem to do well in face-to-face matchups with other Dark Tidings decks is that it doesn't have a lot of the Raise the Tide cards. And so my opponent is always able to raise the tide without eating a lot of chains. And every time I want to counteract that, I'm put behind on that. Is that something you pay attention to? Well, see, here's my issue. Um, I have such a sieve memory that by like turn three, I've forgotten what I've seen in the deck list. <laughs> I've I've forgotten most, if not all, of what I've seen in the deck list. So so it's just almost like a sealed game. Almost every game to me is almost like a sealed, unless I really, really, really know my deck. Blake, is that something when you're doing deck analysis you pay attention to? Yes, I do, actually. When I'm opening a sealed deck, it's not something that I'm like weighing. It's more like I just want to be aware like it's kind of like okay i'm gonna have to take chains if i'm gonna manipulate the tide okay i have a bunch of cards here like this many so i i can get away with not taking chains and i sometimes try and employ that strategy is like for example i had a deck i think last sealed that had reach advantage which is an ember control deck if you have the tide and if you don't it raises it and i found myself more often than not using it as a tide control card rather mm-hmm. than the ember control card um because it had a low creature count so i didn't have the creatures necessarily so I do like to just have an awareness like, okay, there's like this many in it. So it's it's more like in the beginning, it's just, oh, there's a, an abundance of tide manipulation in this deck. So therefore, I don't have to maybe take chains so often I can be patient. Or it's like, okay, I'm going to have to take chains if I have to do this. It's just like a little bit of an awareness moving in the same way. It's like, wow, this deck has almost no ember control. I'm going to have to go really fast. It's just more one of those like mental notes I make of some like avenues the deck will have to be played. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's an interesting factor to consider is how much how much tide manipulation is there. But like you said, Blake, I don't think it's the kind of thing that you could necessarily put a number on because there's so many other factors that determine mm-hmm. whether or not the tide is going to be a big deal um, in the course of a game. Let me ask you this question. How do you feel about Dark Tidings versus Dark Tidings? versus Dark Tidings versus other sets, because this could just be because of my experience with the decks that I've pulled from Dark Tidings. I find that it's a little bit underpowered compared to other decks. This might just be because I'm playing online for the most part, and when I play online, of course, people tend to bring a lot more heat, but I do find when I'm playing just my Dark Tidings decks, even my pretty good ones, they can struggle pretty hard against moderately good decks from other sets whereas they do a lot better in dark tidings versus dark tidings matchups any thoughts on that i agree with you 100 percent. like i said i've been doing my ladder climb for dt and basically i don't think i've had yet a dt versus dt and i think i've lost every one of them so far yeah i mean i 
I can, I can kind of see it both ways in a way. I find there's some matchups where it's really interesting you having Dark Tidings and your opponent does it. Also, I've observed it the other way where I have a non-Dark Tidings deck and my opponent does because it allows the the Tide decision for your opponent who doesn't have Dark Tidings is always an interesting one. But I think it's... um, Like, I think the Tide is more interesting when it's not two Dark Tidings sets, actually, because the decision space is way more different as opposed to when there is the Dark Tidings versus Dark Tidings, it has very much that AOA flavor to me. It's it's kind of like when you're going against each other, it's it's a lot more balanced and back and forth as a result. They're both using it. The incentive to do so is much greater. So you're seeing more action as a result. And therefore, the Tide mechanic itself, for obvious reasons, is more used and you get to see it in more interesting ways as a result. So I, I do like playing Dark Tidings against each other. It also allows me to think differently, totally, not just about my deck, but also my opponent's deck, because I think Dark Tidings is the set that introduced the placement of creatures became more important and must be mindful of those decisions than ever before. Mm-hmm, absolutely true. Um, I kind of like the fact that from a design standpoint, you get the, well, the people playing Dark Tidings uh, have the advantage of, they have a lot of cards in which the Tide matters, whereas their opponent, the only advantage they can get out of taking the Tide is taking away those advantages. So that almost always benefits the person playing the Dark Tidings deck, and I like that space. However, I'm also kind of interested in that I find that oftentimes if I'm playing like even though the set's been out for a while, people should be well aware of what the Tide is and how it works. A lot of times people just ignore it entirely. Like they don't seem to care or notice what's going on with the Tide when they're playing Dark Tidings. Well, I mean, there is also... Playing against Dark Tidings, I should say. There is also the situation that occurs where if you have things like Espeon or the Senshkal Sargesa, like those two cards, even if you don't have Dark Tidings, you still get the effect. There are symmetrical Tide effects that work. Same with like if you take the Tide, you archive the top card of your deck. Like those things still exist so that's those are what I find really interesting when the tide would never ever work for you in that way you're getting to do something that's interesting and I think the decision space as the player with the deck that provides those opportunities also needs to be taken into account mm-hmm Rick, do you find when you're playing, I mean, you sort of have already mentioned that, you know, you feel like the set's a little bit underpowered. Do you find people pay attention to the tide if they're not playing dark tidings? Um sometimes I just ignore it because I find in a lot of my decks the ratio between cards that change the tide and then cards that use the tide my ratio is way off so in a lot of my decks I end up having to take a lot of chains if I take the tide mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that just does not go well <laughs> but do your opponents like do they do you find that they interact with the tide if they're playing a non-dark tidings deck and you're playing a dark tidings deck not generally no it's interesting. People are sort of are okay, I think, in a lot of cases of giving up that ground yep. just because they, they feel like they can still, they don't need to worry about it, which is kind of the interesting thing about the tide as a mechanic as a whole and kind of leads me towards the point that I really wanted to discuss sort of as a wind down for this entire conversation is how much of a life do you think that Dark Tidings has once the next set comes out, whenever that may be, and we move on? Um We've seen this happen a couple times where Coda continued to be played 
you know, quite a lot for a long time. I see less Coda now than I used to, but for for like three or four sets solid, Coda was, you know, just always, always, always a presence in online and live play. We saw AOA kind of dip really hard and then people really come back to it because there was a lot of mechanics that people liked about it and a lot of cards that people liked in it and people really started to discover some of the ways that AOA could be super cool to play. Um, I, I don't really have a position on WC and, and Mass Mutation around this because it hasn't been quite long enough. But do you think that Dark Tidings will continue to have a life or is it just the cream of the crop decks will and the rest of the set will kind of fall fallow? I think it'll be top of the top and then the rest is kind of going to fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that Mass Mutations will be the prevailing set that we will see the most most often. That is my call that I will I will die on that soapbox preaching that. I just see Absolutely it. agree. Yeah, it's just too good with the enhancements and the possibilities and just the card pool itself and and what you can get. It's it's just a very high quality set. Uh that being said, the Dark Tiding side, I think it's AOA 2.0 and a different sort of thing. Like it's it's really fun to play. And in a sealed environment, it interacts with itself in a really interesting way every time. But it's uh, the top decks are not as top as other sets. Like it, it has mm-hmm. like a it has a bit of a ceiling that's not as high. Like you just got a normal ceiling with Dark Tidings, where uh, all the other sets have a vaulted ceiling almost. It seems so. It's just one of those things where I don't think Dark Tidings is bad. I just think it's the really crazy decks are more rare. But I will say that I think the set as a whole in terms of not in competitive play it is the most interesting set just to grab a deck and do cool things and you're like oh you know if it only had this this would be like a really top tier deck i think it has a lot of that but it also has a lot of really interesting interactions that the other sets don't contain but they're not competitive in the long run Mm-hmm. I would 100% agree with you on that one. And I think ultimately when I look at the you know the 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 set I like it a lot because it provides so much of what I like about Keyforge. Um I think that the complexity of it is really interesting um and I think that the mechanics that have been worked into it are really clever. Um its lack of competition doesn't like sort of competitiveness as a whole really doesn't bother me that much because I'm not a super competitive person. But at the same time, like when it comes down to whether or not people are going to really want to play these sets out, I think we're going to have to make an effort at a certain point. Like we're going to have to be like, bring a Dark Tidings deck when we're a couple sets down the line. Or, hey, we got a discount box of Dark Tidings. Let's do a Dark Tidings sealed. You know, I feel like sort of like we had to do with AOA for a little while before people really started catching on to how good AOA could be. And I don't even think that Dark Tidings is as strong as AOA is by by, by any stretch of the imagination. Really? I would disagree with you, but... Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I think that any set you never really know until it settles. And I think a set never really settles until you're like three or four months into the next set. Until you have that what's next comparison, you don't really see. Because look at Mass Mutations. I swear people weren't saying this is going to be the best set ever printed when it came out after three months. Mm. It's taken some time and then people are like, wow. Because it takes that volume of decks discovered to really start seeing what the cream of the crop is. And then you start to really understand the variants that exist. And I mean, just like AOA, you're going to see things that are like the really good stuff is really, really good. And then you kind of don't really remember the stuff that is average because mm. you're no longer, 
even looking at that anymore. So I think that's always an interesting perspective. You know what? That's that's a really good point. So perhaps I will uh, perhaps I will reserve my uh, reserve my 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 judgment until such a time. And this might be one of those things that I say that it will just look foolish from from a future perspective. But of course, <laughs> we cannot end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. This one's called Help from Future from Self. Future self. I have one for you, and I'm going to sound extremely dumb and foolish when I say this, so please, I, I beg you guys not to, to razz me too hard about this one. Pay attention to what your left flank and your right flank are, and don't just sort of not think about it as you're putting stuff down. Um, I thought I learned this lesson with the panpacas back when they were a thing where I would accidentally put a panpaca down on the wrong flank. But I was playing a bunch of Dark Tidings in preparation for this episode, and I put down Whirlpool. If you're not familiar with Whirlpool, it's the uh, unfathomable artifact that says at the end of each player's turn, that player gives control of the creature on their right flank to their opponent and moves it to that player's left flank. The number of times I put a creature down without thinking and messed up because I thought I was putting it on the correct flank for that effect was embarrassing. Like to the point where I wanted to concede the game and just say, you know what, I, I, I shouldn't even be playing right now. But <laughs> it was an object lesson in keep in mind what the right and left flank are, what your opponent's right and left flank are, i.e. the opposite of yours when you're dealing with cards like this because it actually has a huge impact on gameplay as well as the fact that if you're being careful with it, you can really impact the game in a very positive way with cards like Whirlpool. They are very cool. All right. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me on The Crucible at Scuzzy Gruen. Rick, where can they find you? What have you got going on? Uh, I'm doing Archon Corner Shield twice a week, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You can find me on Twitter at The Wheeling Keyforger and Richter78 on TCO. And Blake, where can they find you? What do you got going on? You can find me on Twitter at Boulevard Blake. That's BLVD Blake, as well as in our Discord. And you can also uh, catch me with my YouTube content uh, where we just wrapped up the Who Played It Better. Congratulations to Sky Jedi for playing the deck the best. It was really interesting watching people uh, play the same deck against itself. Rick participated in that, and uh, it was uh, it was cool to just see people piloting the same thing in the decision space that exists when the same deck is going against itself. All right. With all of that said, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back at you again next week with more casual Keyforge conversation. Until then, stay forged.